everyone. Welcome to Seeing Color, a podcast that talks with cultural workers and artists of color in order to expand the area of what is a predominantly white space in the arts. I'm your host, Ziwon Chong. Hey everyone, I hope you're doing well wherever you are. I've been quite busy lately, and I don't know where the time is going. Everything seems like a haze as I've been teaching and making art. I've been preparing for a solo show that's happening November 13th at a local Zuhai gallery, and I'll be showing some videos, some photographic prints, and an installation, and it's been taking all my time. But stay tuned for that, and if you're in Zuhai, please come out and say hi. But for this week, I'm releasing a live interview I did with Jennifer Clevin as part of the Rogers Art Loft residency that I attended this past summer. The wonderful Lance Smith introduces both of us before our conversation, and we talk quite a bit before we end with a quick Q&A from the listeners. Jen is an arts administrator, artist, curator, and the current grants manager for the Neon Museum in Las Vegas. Jen holds a BA in art history and a BFA in art from the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Her work has been exhibited in the Las Vegas City Hall Gallery, Donna Beam Fine Art Gallery, Trifecta, and Counterspace in Las Vegas. From 2010 to 2013, Jen founded and operated Clevin Contemporary, a gallery exhibiting emerging artists in downtown Las Vegas. Jen shares her experiences as a curator, working at Starbucks, being part of the Gulch Collective, and juggling work and studio time. I have to admit, I was a bit nervous during the interview live, and I think it turned out okay. In any case, stay safe and healthy, and I hope you enjoy this. Hello, everyone. Hello, hello. We just want to thank you all again for being here with us this evening. We will now begin the Seeing Color Live interview with Ziwan Chang, an arts administrator, artist, curator, and arts advocate, Jen Clevin. We appreciate a full audience tonight in support of Ziwan and Jennifer, and in support of the Rogers Art Loft. The Rogers Art Loft is made possible by the Rogers Foundation, dedicated to transforming lives through art and education in Southern Nevada. My name is Lance L. Smith. I am the director of the Rogers Art Loft, and I'm going to give a brief introduction to both Ziwan and Jennifer now. Ziwan Chung received his BFA from Cornell University and his MFA from Carnegie Mellon University. Ziwan first got a taste of performing in front of a camera as a book reviewer for Reading Rainbow in the 90s television show Advocating Reading for Children. Since then, Ziwan has continued to probe the intersections of national identity and the personal psyche, focusing on how and where they join and diverge. As an odyssey towards a home that does not exist, a rite of passage with no destination, Ziwan uses his work to search for a critical understanding of an impossible homecoming. Next, we'll talk more about Jen. Jennifer is the grants and gifts manager of the Neon Museum and has been with the organization in roles raising from volunteer to membership manager for the past 10 years. She holds a BA in art history and a BFA in art from the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. 
From 2010 to 2013, she operated Clevin Contemporary, a gallery exhibiting emerging artists in downtown Las Vegas. In 2018, she was selected as the West Staff Emerging Leaders of Color for the state of Nevada and currently serves as the Nevada Museum Association's first vice president and second vice chair of the City of Las Vegas Arts Commission. She thrives to expand access to arts and culture for under-resourced communities and seeks innovative ways to bring the arts to new audiences. In her spare time, she enjoys curating exhibition as a part of Gulch Collective, gardening, creating ceramic art, and the great outdoors, visiting museums, and making soap. I'd like to thank both Jennifer and Zimon for being here with us tonight, and now we will turn it over to you. All right. Thank you, everyone, for joining. Thank you, Lance, for that wonderful uh, introduction, and thank you, Jen, for uh, being part of this whole experience. So happy to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, you came very highly recommended by everyone at Rogers Art Loft and as well as our mutual friend, Justin Favela, <clears throat> who I love dearly. And uh, yeah, so um, let's just get right into it. So yeah, so I mean, one of the things I was really drawn to you when I was kind of going through all the different things that you do is sort of like you've always been keeping busy and you initiate all these different <laughs> things. And you know, you've done things like Clevin Contemporary, you started your own gallery. Um, and so we'll get into that in a bit. But before we do that, I just wanted to quickly go over, you know, you kind of being born and raised in life. Las Vegas and what that was like. And then I'm also curious, do you think growing up in Vegas, you know, how that sort of shaped your views on art? And I say this because I feel like Vegas is one yeah. huge art project. Yeah. I mean, I was born and raised here in Vegas and my mom immigrated here from Taiwan when she was 12. And she met my dad, who's from Montana at the Golden Nugget, where they both worked. <laughs> so every time I'm downtown, it's like a little homecoming. And it's interesting because I don't think, I mean, I didn't think about art when I was a child. Yeah. It's not, at least for me and in my family, it wasn't something that was active. It was a mm -hmm. very passive thing. I had art mm. classes in, you know, public school and junior high and high school, but it wasn't something that was sought out. Mm. Yeah. So I think it was always kind of in the periphery, but not anything that I was actively interested in until I was in college. And then you, because you ended up getting a BFA at UNLV, right? University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Yes. And I actually started as a biology major in 2003. <laughs> wow. I don't know why. Um, Were you going to be a doctor? Yeah. Um, I'm sure I crushed my mom's dreams, but she's pretty happy with what ended up happening. So I thought I was going to be a doctor. And then I realized I was going to have to take organic chemistry. And I was like, I better just quit now. So I did film for, I think, two semesters. And part okay. of my film classes, I had to take an art history class. Okay. So I really enjoyed art history. And in taking those classes, I think I part of that degree. So I switched to the art history major. Part of that degree, I had to take one or two studio classes. Mm. And I had taken some photography classes in high school and just kind of got right back into it. And um, I was really drawn in by the community of artists that I was around yeah, and yeah. wanted to 
basically just be with them all the time. So I continued to make art in college, um, was able to get both degrees and found a really, really positive community. Yeah. And so, yeah, so it was like, you know, slowly kind of pulling you in first film, then art history, then art. So I guess, you know, after you graduated, I know, you know, you did a few jobs here and there. I also heard through Justin that you also worked uh, briefly at Starbucks. And so did I actually. (laughs) Oh, not briefly. I worked there for six years, like the the whole time I was in college. It's hard for me to imagine. I was there just for one summer, so... And actually, I stayed at Starbucks because I also had a great community there. So I was fortunate to work across the street from the university. So Uh everything converged. All of my Mm. art friends would visit me at work. I'd give them lots of free frappuccinos. It was very harmonious. Yeah. Yeah. So then, you know, I know you did a lot with coffee and you also you also worked at a coffee shop after you got your bachelor's and then you ended up starting Clevin Contemporary. Can you talk a little bit about how that whole thing happened? And I'm also just amazed because to me to imagine myself at that age starting a contemporary <laughs> art gallery is sort of mind blowing for me. Well, yeah, when I graduated college, it was 2009. It was at the peak of the recession. So I had very little prospects for full-time work. And fortunately, I was living at home with my parents. So they were, it was okay if I wanted to start this small gallery. And working at the coffee shop I did was the anchor for an arts center. Um, it was an old emergency room building. Okay. So they had all of these really small exam rooms. I'm talking small. It was like four feet by seven feet, something really crazy tiny. So that was the size of the gallery. Yes. Okay. So it was very small. It was very okay. intimate. Yeah, yeah. And um, I was surrounded by lots of other small galleries and creative businesses. The space is called uh-huh. Emergency Arts. So uh-huh. actually, I hadn't thought about opening my own gallery. I was working with the Contemporary Arts Collective here. Wendy Kavak was running it at that time and just getting really involved uh-huh. in that and participating on a couple different committees. And I enjoyed it. I did a lot of curating while I was in college. And the owner of the coffee shop, who was also running the emergency arts building, one of the spaces became available, which was rare, Mm. and asked if I had been interested. And I was like, let's just do it. I really don't have anything to lose. I have a plethora of amazing artist friends to pull from. I'll get great experience. And there'll be another space in Las Vegas to show new work. And I thought that was something that we were really lacking Mm. infrastructure for exhibitions. Mm. And so what did you learn in becoming a gallery director for this space, gallery owner of space? And also, what did you learn from, you know, trying to create the thing that you wanted, creating that space for an arts community? Um, There is a lot of planning, as can be imagined, a lot of timelines, a lot of writing. Mm -hmm, Yeah. All of my press releases, did all my own marketing And working with writers to get coverage and then also trying to work with buyers to buy the work so that I could pay the artists. Yeah, yeah. It was a lot of managing, but it was fun. You know, I was lucky. It was something I was young. I had a lot of energy, so (laughs) I was willing to put a lot into it. So running different websites, you know, making sure everything was updated, staying in contact with the artists and then sourcing new artists. And then at the same time, trying to be a part of that arts community of emergency arts, like trying to work with all of the other business owners there to elevate the work that we were trying to show and um, 
It, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. So then from there, I guess that's where you learned how to write your grants, right? All that writing. And now I know you work at the Neon Museum as a grants writer, right? Grants gift manager. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, can you talk a bit about how that sort of transition happened? Um, I know you started out as a volunteer tour guide and you worked your way up into the grants and gifts manager position. So, you know, how did that sort of happen? And then also uh, what happened with Clevin Contemporary? Why did it stop? So Club and Contemporary closed in 2013 because I was beginning to work full time at the Neon Museum. Mm. Prior to then, prior to I think summer of 2012, I was part time. So I was able to manage running the gallery and uh, working part time. But once I started working full time, it was a little bit more difficult. So that was really the reason to close. I was definitely sad to do it and still miss that opportunity in that space because I was very trusting of the artists to go in and do whatever they wanted. There were yeah, yeah. some really fun installation works that happened in there and um, yeah. was really proud to have that space and be a part of the community, the arts community. But at the museum, so it's true that my writing for the gallery helped me in my grant writing now. But when I first started at the museum as a volunteer tour guide, I worked my way through a lot of different paths. So I was helping with film and photo shoots and tours. And mm. then I started doing more admin work and I was the office manager. At a certain point in time, we needed to focus more on fundraising. Right. And really, it was just trial by fire. They were like, Jen, you're the new <laughs> grant writer? <laughs> Let's do this. So yeah. I learned from reading other grants. I've picked up research along the way and taken many webinars and just kind of joined the community of grant writers here in Las Vegas and pass things around to them. It's a lot of fun. It's a lot of work. And yeah, yeah. there are times of high stress and then there are times of low stress where you can take a vacation. So yeah. it, it works with my schedule well. Yeah. And so at this point, you know, you're pretty far off from being a doctor. What are your parents sort of... <laughs> Uh, feel like not that you know not that it's bad or good <laughs> <laughs> no I'm so fortunate to have the parents I have I think they have a lot of trust in me and yeah. know that I take very calculated risks they trust in what I'm doing and I'm pretty certain that they're proud of where I ended up they may have been a little bit nervous that I was graduating college with an art degree in yeah. 2009 yeah mine too but it, it worked out yeah <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I think I think they just you know care for our well being. I think most yes. most, most how it usually comes across. So yeah, so I guess you know with you as the grants and gifts manager, you know, and you have it seems like you know the ins and outs of the museum. And I'm curious, you know, as a role as an arts administrator, you know, can you talk about this idea of like community advocacy and also creating a culture for museum goers? And how do we shape that with your role as the Neo Museum and also having been part of, you know, Clevin Contemporary? Um, Las Vegas is a very unique city in that we didn't grow up with museums. We are one of the largest metropolitan areas without a multiple freestanding museums. Hmm. In a lot of ways, the museums that we do have, um, at least the Neon Museum and our contemporary, the Mob Museum, yeah. our visitation is primarily through tourism. And so when you talk about building community, I think that in a lot of ways, the grant work that I do enables that kind of community building. So while tourists are basically our bread and butter, they come and provide lots of admissions for us to do community work. Grants enable us to do the different types of arts engagement that we do in the mm. community and different education programs and broaden our exhibition schedule. Right. As an advocate, I think that 
it's difficult to get out to museums because they are physical spaces. Yeah. So actually in this time of COVID, a lot of museums have transformed programming to be more online. Mm. And I think that that's where you can hone a community because people have greater access to something like that. So there's not mobility issues. There's not the inability to, to get to your space. There's not financial issues. And it is a different experience because I think many of us understand that object-based interactions are preferential to maybe something that, that's online, but it does open up new audiences for you. And it could also be audiences that maybe, you know, besides not being able to get out of the house, maybe they just don't want to, you know? Yeah. And I think that that's a, definitely a segment that prior to the pandemic, we were missing. Right, right. I mean, and not even during the pandemic, but prior to the pandemic, like you said, it's a physical space, which also means, you know, transportation to the museum. Uh, you know, a lot of museums cost money as well, right? You know, like, mm -hmm. you know, $10, $15, $20 for a ticket to go into a museum. And, you know, if you got a kid right. or two kids or a partner or whatever, that's like, you know, 15 times four, like $60. So it adds up and then you go there and it's just like this kind of austere white space that a lot of times is not very welcoming. Right. So th those are all the different things that I think of in terms of like also in terms of accessibility, which people don't tend to talk about. Right. And I do feel fortunate at the Neon Museum. We don't have the white walls. We actually have the blue sky as our background. Oh, really? I want to visit it. I haven't been there, but I really want to go. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's a little warm right now because we are an outdoor <laughs> museum. Yeah. But I feel like to a certain degree, we've broken down those barriers of white walls. Yeah. I feel like the space is a lot more welcoming yeah. because it's not under the guise of a traditional museum. And there are pros and cons to that. But right now, I think, especially, you know, with the pandemic going on, being outdoors, people feel a lot more comfortable. But yeah, there's no white walls, which means we don't have a lot of different exhibits. But it does mean we have the opportunity to tell greater stories about the signs that people see in front of them. Yeah. And so what were some of the innovative ways that you used, I guess, for the online programming? How did you, I guess, what programming did you do? Um, we did multiple tours through the Boneyard, which is our predominant daily program, 45 minute tours. And actually, Justin Favello was the first tour guide at the Neon Museum yeah, uh -huh. and came up with a lot of the structure of our tours. So yeah, yeah, we produced a couple of those videos that are free and on YouTube. We did small gallery talks that went into a deeper history of certain signs. We had teacher resources that we posted online, different lesson plans that also parents could use. We also created a 360 degree virtual tour that could be accessed from the comfort of your home. Oh, wow. And okay. that one's really fun. You can hover over different signs and learn a lot more. And we also have a web-based app and that has 25 of our greatest hits hmm. on there. So you can learn from the air-conditioned comfort of your bedroom. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. I think very much the museum is should be reflective of our community, and that should be within staffing. It should be throughout your board. It should be an advisory board positions, and you should really lean into your community to see what type of programming they would find useful. I think in a lot of ways, you go into your museum world as an administrator and you think, I know what these people want. Yeah. <laughs> they want this art program or they want to learn about this. Yeah. But the reality is, unless we seek their input, we're never going to truly know, you know? So I, th I think that's a big challenge for a lot of museums, but it's also a great opportunity to learn more. 
Right. And so I guess what are some of the outreach that the Neo Museum does to talk to community? Um, we work with our school districts or our school district in town to see what type of programs would be most accessible for students. Um, we work with other nonprofit organizations to see how they would feel or how they would like to access the museum. And we are working on diversifying our board and bringing in some outside partners to better understand how we can fill any gaps that that may occur. Yeah. Especially within the arts. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, I guess and we were talking about this earlier, but like, you know, you also are a photographer, a ceramicist. Uh, you take care of a lot of plants. I do. Yeah. And so, yeah, can you talk a bit more about how your role as an artist administrator kind of works and influences your own work as an artist um, and also your own path from a photographer to ceramicist? We, we were talking about this earlier, but could you talk a little bit mm -hmm. more about it, the listeners? Sure. So I did notice a big change in the way I was thinking about my artwork after probably four years of working at the museum. Uh -huh. I think when you leave college, or at least when I left college, I thought a lot about how work was supposed to be my interpretation. Mm -hmm. It's supposed to be this piece that's reflective of me. Yeah. But I think working at the museum and thinking about how other people see my work and how they were going to interact with it, that really sparked a change. So when I did my urban naturalism show in 2017 at the Winchester Community Center, I wanted to make a piece... Um, and so this work is photography based. And then I layered white out correction fluid on top in these bird shapes. I wanted to have a participatory piece. And I think that's the next slide. I had, I think this, the size of this. I love that photograph of the of trees and the white out. It looks like a dream sequence. Yeah. You know, where all the, all the white doves are sort of these glowing things. I, that's exact. I wanted to kind of focus on these strange cell phone towers that were popping up all around. And for some reason, I got it in my head that they were dressed as trees for <laughs> bird migration. I don't know why I thought that. I was very resolute that these were created for birds. So I uh. wanted to create, yeah, this kind of like fantasy image of what it should look like mm. if there were, you know, even more like fauna around. Right, right. But in the next image, I wanted to also take it a little bit further and allow people to add birds where they thought would be most appropriate. Mm. So I think this piece is like, five feet by eight feet. And I just left stickers in this little side pouch and invited the community to affix birds where they thought was most appropriate. Yeah. And this was also exhibited at a community center that was next to where I grew up. So I thought that was really important for me because the space is visited by lots of children, seniors, mm -hmm. just people that live around the neighborhood. And I think having access to art is really important and trying to, it's a free gallery. So being able to drop in while they're open, it was, I want to say it was open whenever the center was open. So mm -hmm. people could didn't have to like rush there after work. They didn't have to schedule it in their day. They could just happen upon it. And I think that's a great way to think about how art could be in our lives. Like you just happen upon something and it, and it gives you pause for reflection. Right, right. And I think that that's also quite, can be quite hard, especially in like a car culture city, right? Like Las Vegas is, yeah. you know, I mean, even LA is hard to do things, car culture. And I think we typically think of like maybe New York City as a kind of city where you sort of walk and then discover things, whereas here in a car city, it can be more difficult. So I think it's, it's great that you're able to 
kind of create a space that's trying to have that sort of come across feeling. Yeah, I really appreciate the city galleries, the county galleries. City of Henderson is doing a great job getting their arts plan off the ground. I think it's in the library district, especially, I think it's a great way for the general public to see art. I think we focus on the traditional art viewers in a lot of cases, but we really need to be bringing in the general public to see this work because they're wildly deserving of it as well. Yeah. Uh, This is also part of the exhibit, but whereas the first image I was adding elements to it in this one, I'm taking away. So they're all photographs and I've scratched off pieces or cut away pieces. And I was creating actually those cell phone towers in these. Mm. Right, there's a yeah. certain type of erasure that happens. Yeah. I did that similar. I had when I was an undergrad, I had a I was doing these things with bananas and then I was using uh, bleach <laughs> to sort of uh, print bananas onto canvas and then I used bleach to kind of bleach out, you know, bits and pieces of the printouts. But yeah, I mean I think the sort of like taking away of the material kind of erasure, those are some of the ideas that kind of immediately pop into my Mm -hmm. mind and then so from here how did you kind of shift to ceramics i know you kind of create this kind of change and in my mind there's such different mediums right this photography and then the sort of working with the earth and and hands with ceramics yeah definitely i think in my photography i typically shot with a medium format camera Uh, okay and then just scanned negatives and printed them so there was a lot of control that i had in that and especially with adding the birds on top of the images or cutting away certain areas or scratching them out i had a lot of control over things yeah so i think in like 2016 i got into ceramics and i think a lot about me doing ceramics was like trying to lose control and it's funny because i lost control and then you regain it but you regain it in a maybe in a more humble way at least for me Mm -hmm. because i thought i was going to be like Mm -hmm. really good it was like, I'm strong, so I'm going to really be able to do this. <laughs> and you can't do it right yeah. away. You know, it's not about yeah. being strong. It's not about any of that. It's just practice. And um, I definitely went into it thinking, oh, I'm going to nail this. I'm going to be so good at this. And I was so bad at it. And I didn't even do the wheel for a couple of years because I was traumatized. I was like, I'm not good at this. I can't do it then. And then just little by little, I decided I'm just going to jump back into it. And I think having the time to like touch the clay and understand it more through hand building, I was able to understand what it was going to do when I was on the wheel. Like what was centrifugal force going to do to it? So actually for the past year and a half, I've been focused mostly on wheel throwing. And I got into ceramics is funny because what's in the background of this photo, I got into ceramics so I could have more plants. (laughs) I was tired of buying, (laughs) buying a bunch of pots. And I was like, I want to learn how to make my own. Yeah. It took a very long time until I could make a large one. I have lots of tiny little pots, which the next image is like the tiniest, lightest pot I've ever made, but it does have a drainage hole in the bottom. So I do consider it a planter. Uh And now with ceramics, I think about my glaze combinations and how they're going to react, but it's still about this loss of control. You know, I don't know what the glaze is going to do once it goes into the fire until I test it. And even when you test it, sometimes it just doesn't work out. Yeah, yeah. I have a lot of test pieces and I'll use the same glaze on the same clay body and it doesn't do 
what I wanted to do. So I think I just like the element of of surprise in this work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in some ways, right? I guess photography sort of has that when you when you take the picture, and then and at least. It, with digital, it's a little different, but like when you put it into the developer, right? The image would sort of come to life, and you'd finally be able to see we took a photo of. But I, I always felt like with ceramics, there's more of like this sort of magic black box you put things in, and then something comes out, and you actually have no idea it could explode. Like you were talking yeah. about, the glaze just might come out completely different, even though you do have like the tests beforehand. Mm-hmm. And in that way, like yeah, ceramics is like this kind of strange medium in this highly digitized world, right? I mean, I think of my own video stuff and I'm like, you know, I follow a tutorial and it works exactly like it does. But when I throw stuff on a wheel, it doesn't always happen that way. Right. It definitely is about slowing down. I think that that during this time, I needed to figure out how to slow myself down. And I think ceramics has has helped me do that. Yeah. And then in addition to ceramics, you're also part of this collective, the Gulch Collective. Is that right? Gulch. Gulch. Gulch Gulch Collective. Gulch Collective. That came about a few years after college. It was originally Michaela Whitmore, Justin Favela, Crystal Ramirez, and myself. And it was... You know, I really saw it as a way for us to stay in good communication and work on projects collaboratively. One of the first things we did was a workshop in AIDS Outreach Center Mm -hmm. where we made many, many tissue flowers and exhibited them in that space Mm -hmm. for I think as long as that space is open. After that, Michaela had moved to Macau for six months. But during that time, she was part of a group that was doing like an art festival here, a one night art festival at an old motel. Mm-hmm. So essentially you submitted the work you wanted to do and artists were assigned different hotel rooms. So for Gulch, it was a performance. It was photography. We created costumes, but we were doing a photo shoot essentially in these hotel rooms and then we layered mm. different images in the background. And I was always sad we never ended up exhibiting that work, but it was really fun. That was in... I think 2014 or 2013. And now today we were part of this new exhibit. Well, it's not new, but it's an ongoing exhibit at the Barrick Museum Mm -hmm. called Future Relics. And we've added Lance Smith, who most of you know, and Kendo Miller to our group. And in this exhibit, we were really fortunate to work with the Barrick Museum and Alicia Curlin because she's given us a lot of freedom to work in this mm-hmm. west wing of the gallery that has many cases. And those cases used to house pre-Columbian artifacts mm-hmm. that the museum had collected many, many years ago. And so they were taking those artifacts out and using that space, you know, allowing artists to really conceptualize what they wanted to do. And so as a group, we thought about how could we kind of memorialize these this idea uh, or this space that once held these pre-Columbian artifacts with contemporary Latinx artists. So that's what's inside the cases. This image specifically is of Adriana Chavez performance that she came back to, I believe, five times throughout the duration of this exhibit. And this exhibit is coming down at the end of July. Mm -hmm. So everybody get out to the Barrick Museum to see it. But we've added to it over time. And it opened last August. So we've had a, an incredible slate. Oh, wow. Yep. We have three phases of artist editions and all of our artists are Latinx and it's just a really beautiful exhibit. I'm really proud of it. And 
I really enjoy working collaboratively with Gulch. You know, we're all good friends, but it's great to be able to conceptualize themes for shows or ideas for new works with other people. I think sometimes art making can be really insular. Yes. But I'm naturally kind of extroverted. So this works really well for my own practice. Yeah. Does Gulch have a sort of mission statement or is it sort of ever evolving? Oh my gosh, we do have a mission statement and I can't think of it off the top of my head, but I know it's, it's it's really, (laughs) it's, um, you know, creating new works or exhibitions and workshops for BIPOC and LGBTQ Mm. artists. So I think, I know that in the future we want to expand that so that we can have more workshops and talks and safe spaces so that we can discuss work and empower people to continue doing their artwork and give them kind of resources on how they can do that. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I guess moving forward, what are some of the plans that you have for also the Neo Museum and also your own work? You know, hopefully you have some, you know, new shows coming up, but yeah. What are you sort of planning on in the future? I'm hoping right now, uh, well, uh, in my ceramic work, anytime I couldn't think about something to make or, you know, I just didn't want to make the project that day at the studio, I would make two matching cups. And I've... Okay. Like perfectly matching. Well, they're not perfectly matching, but yeah, yeah, attempts as as, yeah, at matching attempts, cups. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And I, I liked the idea of the slowing down mm-hmm. to have coffee for two or tea for two. Yeah. So I made multiple different types of matching cups. So I'd like to continue making something like that and then present that as a show at some point in time. Mm. With Gulch, I know that we'll come back together after this long, hot summer and come up with another plan to do something fun. And at the Neon Museum, we're accepting submissions right now for our National Artists in Residence program, which will be at the end of this year. Oh, nice. We just finalized a really fun teaching artist outreach at CCSD schools, and we're hoping that that'll continue in the next school year. And hopefully people will come out and visit us, especially when it gets cooler. Yeah, yeah. I'll try to make it out in the near future. You know, like I think I've been telling everyone who I've been interviewing for this podcast, especially in the Las Vegas community, is like how sad I am that I can't make it out there for this residency. That was sort of the whole point of me applying to the residency. But, you know, so I think as we're winding down to the end of the interview, is there anything else that I missed that you want to talk about before we move on to the Q&A section? No, I really love what the Rogers Art Loft has done, bringing in artists from out of Las Vegas to give us their perspective on what's going on here, make work maybe influenced by our community and provide more spaces for artists and people to appreciate art and to make art a part of their lives. So a big applause for them. Yeah. Thank you, Lance. Thank you, Spencer, and everyone at Rogers Art Loft. And thank you, Jen, as well. Um, So I guess at this point, we can open it up to the Q&A. So everyone who is listening, I believe... Spencer has kind of led it out to Facebook, right? Twitch. I'm not sure where else this is going on. Zoom. You can, uh, you know, put your questions to Lance and Lance will sort of relay the questions to us. And otherwise, you know, Jen and I, we can keep talking, chatting um, about life and art. You know, I'm curious, did you ever visit Taiwan? I did. Yeah. I was really fortunate in 2018 in October. I went with my parents. It was the first time I'd been. We went to Taipei. And then 
we went on a crazy bus tour for three days across the east side of Taiwan. I wouldn't recommend a bus tour. It's <laughs> a lot of karaoke. Really? At, at wait, loud wait. decibels. Yes. Wait, wait. Karaoke on the bus? <laughs> on the bus. Very loud. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't. I don't speak Chinese, so I don't know anything that's going on. Yeah. Me, uh, my mom just kept looking back, checking in on me. Oh, are you doing it? She was very concerned that I was not having a good time. Most of it was just pretty funny, but it was wild seeing people do karaoke at 5 a.m. nonstop. <laughs> I'll send you videos of it because okay. you know I recorded that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my memory of Taiwan was, we have one question, we'll get to it, but my memory of Taiwan was I went there with my mom and my mom, she loves stinky tofu. And so we were in the street market oh. and she could smell it from like two blocks away. She's like, there's stinky tofu somewhere. And then she like followed her nose and I was just sort of following. I didn't, I hadn't tried it at that point, but, uh, Did yeah. you like it? I don't remember it. I remember trying it and there's tons of different varieties in China, you know, mm -hmm. different cities and regions have different versions. So at the moment I haven't tried it again, but I remember being like, yeah, it's fine. I like smelly stinky foods. It's, it's very pungent. Yeah. I love pungent foods. Um, <laughs> All right, uh, so we got a question from Alicia Curling. So Alicia asks, how do you manage a full-time job and creative life? Any tips? <laughs> and parenthetical add-on, or if you don't want to talk about that, tell us more about the <laughs> golden nugget story. I don't know what that she's referring to. Oh, I don't really have any tips. <laughs> I am fortunate to have some paid time off where I work, so I use that paid time off to do some creative stuff. I am in the process of setting up a home studio so that when I do have some spare time and I'm home, I'm able to make new work. It's a really difficult thing to find balance because at the end of a workday, you're just really exhausted. So I'm going to have to really set myself up for success and give myself day, like work days, which is what I did when I was going into the studio downtown. I would go in Wednesday nights and mm. Saturdays. So I'll probably stick to the same schedule. But it's, that's not really good advice. <laughs> what else? Let's see. Yeah. The Golden Nugget story. My parents, it, when they were both in high school, worked at the steakhouse at the Golden Nugget. It was called Lily Langtree. Okay. And I th it's still there today. It's called Lily's, though, now. And my dad was the busboy and my mom was the waitress. Okay. And they hit it off, got married very young, still married. And actually, I wore my golden nugget necklace that my mom gave me when I was little oh. um, just for this talk today. That's sweet. Is she, is she in the yeah. audience? Is she listening? I don't know. I probably, <laughs> I, I probably should have sent them the link. They're very supportive. I will make sure to send them the podcast. Yeah. Uh, and then I guess in my answer to Alicia, I, I think it's, it's hard, right? I think everyone has their own way of doing work. Some people need a lot of time and space to kind of get to, into their creative mental space. And some people can sort of easily click it on and off. Also people have different types of work, right? So I know like some painters who can just, you know, they're working on a painting, then 
they go to their job and they come back and they just keep painting, right? As a sort of, not mindless, but there are certain tasks that need to be done. Then some people have a sort of like roundabout way of sort of like thinking, you know, reading books, uh, kind of watching YouTube videos to get inspiration and may not have such a straightforward path. So I think it's difficult to answer because each person has a different way of approaching their own studio work. Alicia, you just gave me an idea, though. I'm totally going to make some golden nugget mugs. Mm. And then we'll have tea for two with them. You can also make some, like, you know, castings of that golden nugget. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We have one question in the chat from Kim Miller. They ask, what is something you wish you could see in the Las Vegas arts community? I guess... I guess I would want to see maybe more children's specific art programs. And I say that coming from the point of view of a non-parent. So there may be a lot of them out there that I just don't know about. But having special, you know, festivals or something where children get to interact with the arts or just special days where they get to go and be around art and talk about it. Not, not like in any kind of critical way, but just in like, a very childlike way. What are their first impressions? I think that's great. Actually, the city of Las Vegas is in a pretty good place when it comes to the arts. I think, I mean, we're very fortunate to have the Believer here in Black Mountain Institute. So we have incredible literature and we have the Smith Center that has Broadway performances and all of the performing arts spaces at UNLV. So there's lots of different dance recitals too. I think one of the things actually that would be great is like a comprehensive events listing. Like, and I'm somebody that wants to print everything out. I'm still like very like old school and I like have a calendar. I want to like cross, I want to X everything off, but mm -hmm. I want to see what's going on each day. Cause I know there's so much I'm missing because there, we really do a pretty good job programming the arts, but it's almost like if you're not clued into it, how are you going to find out about it? I think that's one of those struggles. I think marketing is always a struggle for the arts um, getting new audiences and also trying to compete with all the other fun things happening in Las Vegas. But, you know, Las Vegas is really growing rapidly within the arts. We've got Area 15 and Meow Wolf and just lots of new fun things that are happening. There's the Seven Magic Mountains. But yeah, I, I guess some sort of comprehensive list would be nice if things are going on. Yeah, that's where you can come in and make an app for that and make all your money. <laughs> I feel I feel I just like every told you city I print paper things out. I can't make an app. <laughs> every city I've been to has like there's I mean they're struggling to figure this out. I think it's not just a yeah. Las Vegas thing cuz like I was in Berlin and like there's like three different apps. I was in LA, there's also you know, three different apps for like figuring out what's going on, what's opening. Um, and then like, yeah, no one quite knows how to, at the moment, organize all of it. And I guess there, maybe it's a quality problem because there's so many things going on. And unfortunately there, I know that there are calendars and newsletters. I just probably am not subscribed to all of them. And even if I was, maybe I missed something. But yeah, the, the whole marketing behind everything that's going on. And you know what? I'm kind of tired of people thinking that Las Vegas has no culture because there's always something to do. There's always some sort of, you know, theater performance or um, something going on at a library, an art exhibit, a workshop. You know, yeah. I, I just think people need to seek it out. And I know that this is something people talk about a lot in our community. Like, how do we find out about these things? But it's out there. I mean, I'm complaining about it right now. 
but I know that I can Google everything too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, I think that's sort of the the difficulty, right? I think they, the more choices we have, the more confused we get, right? I think there's that whole thing with like, if, you know, you offer people too many cereals and they'll just pick like one or two that they're comfortable with, but yeah. I have a real problem with making yeah. choices. Cereals <laughs> were very difficult. I like to go to a restaurant that has like five items on the menu because I don't want to sort through everything. Yeah. 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 Like Del Taco? Uh, exactly. When I, when I was in Vegas, that's where Justin told me, like, you have to go there. So, yeah. I went there once. Oh. Um, anonymous attendee asks, what is grants writing at the new muse- Neon Museum all about? So more oftentimes than not, I'm looking for grants to fund special programs. So it can be like our artists in residence program. We have various educational programs and youth programs, but typically it is program specific. And I hope that answers your question. But, you know, I do a variety of research. So, I mean, staying on top of all of these new grants coming out too with the American Rescue Plan has been a lot of fun. Just like it was with the CARES Act when that came out, allocating a lot more funds to the NEH, the NEA, and the Institute of Museum and Library Services. So I'm always staying on top of those deadlines and reading a lot of fine print, taking a lot of webinars. I have a lot of spreadsheets and I love color coding them. <laughs> but yeah, most of the time it's program specific. Um, we have a scholar in residence as well, and we do a variety of public programs throughout the year, different panel discussions and lectures. All right. Anonymous says thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's they're interesting questions only because, like, I think if you're not in the arts, like, I feel like a lot of times the arts is this sort of like weird black box. Like, what is a curator? What does an artist do? Mm-hmm. What, you know, what does an art administrator do? You know, and it's like, there's like these like fancy titles that don't seem to have a clear answer in normal daily life, right? Yeah. I mean, administrator as a term, I feel like is a catch-all. Like, uh, yeah. mm-hmm. I do perform a variety of functions for the museum. One of my favorite parts about being in the place I am at the museum is mentorship and working with mm. my younger coworkers or people who are new to the museum field and helping them navigate because really the fact of the matter is Las Vegas is going to grow. Museums are going to grow here and we're going to need a lot of infrastructure. And that means that there's going to be a lot of cultural workers here. And I'm hopeful that the city becomes really a hub of museum workers. And um, it's a beautiful place to be. And working with the people that work at other museums is really joyous. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, every city is, is kind of going through this sort of growth as people move into these cities. And I think, you know, the other issues are like people, cities figuring out how to kind of grow with the influx of all these people. And so I'm curious, yeah, how Vegas kind of changes. Vegas is also this weird place in the sense that the outside world always views it as, as like this temporary place, right? People go there just for the bachelor parties, you know, a, a weekend out. And then there's also like the the actual, um, you know, communities that actually live there, right? And then those mm-hmm. things kind of feed off each other in, in, in a sort of interesting back and forth feedback. Yeah, very true. It's so fun to be a part of just talking about art and culture and museums. I feel like I should I should give myself more space with people to just talk. You know, I think a lot of times I'm thinking about planning for mm-hmm. a project or a program, but sometimes it's fun to just talk about how we like 
how we work and how we exist and who we serve and why we do it. And thinking about, you know, those kinds of things always makes me very excited. Yeah. I mean, I think also like some of my favorite sort of ways to learn about, you know, different artists and creative is sort of like reading their interviews, right? Reading their discussions, right? Because mm-hmm. it's sort of like they let their guard down sometimes, not always, but they let their guard mm-hmm. down. And then you kind of see like a small nugget of who they are as a human being, which may not be like this uh, wonderful, awe-inspiring sort of quote or like, um, but like it kind of reveals a little bit about their creative process. I, I mean, I'm thinking back to Alicia's question in terms of like how, you know, you juggle all these different things. And I'm thinking like, you know, one of the things that I really love about like Felix Gonzalez Torres, who's an artist, you know, one of the limits he set himself is like all the artwork that he makes has to fit underneath his bed. Right. And sort of like when you learn about that and you think about it, like why would one have that? And then you think about maybe the restrictions that one might have to then force yourself to have that restriction that the work has to fit underneath the bed. And then then extrapolating that and thinking like, okay, how does one work in that way? How does one sort of find a creative uh, environment within those restrictions, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. So I guess if there's no other questions, you know, I mean, Jen, thank you again so much for being part of this. Again, thank you everyone at the Rogers Art Loft. Um, do you want to let the people know where they can find you on online and find more about your work and all the wonderful things that you're doing. I think if you search Clevin Contemporary, I still have an old Tumblr online. So when um, I went there, it, the, I couldn't access it when I went. But I'll, I'll oh, double you check. Let's see if I if I can get that start. I'll post the link if I can find it again. But yeah, okay. Um, and uh, I'm on Instagram at jenclev00. Um, my ceramics can be found at jenk ceramics j-e-n-k ceramics on instagram and just look for me in the papers i guess (laughs) yeah and everyone go visit the neon museum check it out can people is is the neon museum open for tours or is it sort of closed for covid we're open for everything we are open 3 p.m until 11 p.m daily and likely be expanding those 11 p.m it's the neon museum We'll be open. It's likely we're going to open earlier in the fall when it cools down a little bit. Okay. All right. Yeah. So yeah, everyone wear your mask, be safe, six feet distance. Um, luckily, like you said, Jen, that uh, is outdoors. So go visit. And if you're an artist, go apply to their artist in residence. It's a wonderful program. I think a great opportunity to also work with the, you know, different people at the new museum, including Jen, um, and then also make some work and thank you everyone for being part of this. So take care and stay safe, everyone. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Seeing color is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Siwon Chung. Additional help with editing by Tokyo Hong and Mandy Tong. Original music by Alex Chow. You can find more information on the website www.seeingcolorpod.com or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under the handle Seeing Color Pod. If you enjoyed this show and have the time, I'd appreciate if you could go to Apple Podcast or wherever you listen and give Seeing Color a five-star review. This really helps others discover the show and gives greater visibility for everyone on Seeing Color. 
Again, thank you so much for listening and goodbye for now.